welcome everyone to yet another expert podcast run by the UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab. This is part of our expert series focusing on a post-COVID reset, understood in this case as a reset along a more equitable and smart path. The conversation will revolve, as always, around concrete policy measures that are seen by our experts as being conducive to such a recovery and on the data and the knowledge we hold or perhaps lack but need to underpin these policy shifts. Our expert today is Gil Ayal. Gil is a professor of sociology at Columbia University. Gil's work is, amongst other areas, in what he calls sociology of expertise. His current focus being on understanding the causes and the dimensions of the mistrust in experts and mistrust in expertise. And now, this is the key to our conversation today. Gil, welcome. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. I'm Yulia Shevchukinesko's lead on inclusive policies and knowledge policy nexus, and I'm your host today. So this episode is concerned with trust in science, trust in expertise, and the slow demise of such. Uh, Gil, let's start with the basics and say what we actually mean by trust in science. You make a case that it is not all that simple, saying that science is a construct that needs dissecting into expertise, normal science, regulatory science, and so on. You also talk critically about what trust means in this case. So could you please set the parameters of this talk and tell us what is your take on trust in science? Trust in science, neither of those terms is, uh, I think, perfectly clear. Uh, both of them need to be clarified. So I'll, I'll start with science. And I would say, first of all, um, would you just ask people if they trust science? Across the board, all over the world, over the last four or five decades, people say they trust science doesn't seem to be an issue. And yet we are all very convinced that there is an issue. So why is that? It's because the, what is being mistrusted is not science. It's what I would call regulatory science. And I'll, I'll explain this in a second. But, but um, uh, you, can, you can just think in terms of a distinction between uh, what Thomas Kuhn called normal science, which is uh, or what we sometimes call ba basic science and the science that is um, done in, in regulatory agencies. In the United States, that would be the FDA, the CDC, um, the National Academies of Science, um, and other countries around the world have similar agencies of government uh, that do that. They may be semi-independent, or uh, they may be part of a Ministry of Health, or they could actually be in the sort of the nonprofit sector too. They don't have to be governmental to be regulatory because the, what makes regulatory science different than normal science is not uh, the fact that it is done by the government. It's also not the techniques. The techniques are the same. You have laboratory, you have microscopes, you have, you have the same techniques. What makes this different is this temporal structure. So, Normal science, I say, um, operates within what you might call a reversible time. Um, you run an experiment, you get a result, you don't like the result, you run an experiment again. And you can run it again and again and again, modifying different aspects. So time is sort of reversible, at, at least until the, you know, the grant money is, is done. Um, but in regulatory science, it doesn't work in this way. Regulatory science is oriented towards the decision in the present. This is why you guys are asking me these questions, just because it's about policy. It's about policy decisions. So regulatory science, its temporal structure typically takes the form of cutoffs or 
acceptable levels. Um, those are essentially forecasts. They are estimating something that will happen in the future on the basis of past data, data accumulated in the past that from which you extrapolate into the future, and then you use it in order to dictate a decision in the present. So regulatory science, its temporal structure, is about making the present, making the future present. Um, making the future present, an obvious example that with which we are all um, aware uh, is flatten the curve. Yeah, flatten the curve, you visualize the future, and there's a line goes through the curve that tells you this is where we want to be, so this is what we need to do in order to be there. That is a form of power. Regulatory science, therefore, is not just knowledge. It's not just knowledge being produced. It's a form of power. It, it tells people what to do um, in the present. So uh, when you think about it, the world economy was not brought to a standstill in 2020 by a virus. It was brought into a standstill by this very form of power that we ourselves, you know, unleashed, um, dictating, you know, what needs to be done for the sake of the future. Um, so that's... That is what's being mistrusted. And that's far more understandable why people would mistrust it because it's a form of power that impacts their lives. Now about trust. Trust is also a very tricky thing. It's not as simple as it sounds. And I should say that surveys, I don't think really grasp that phenomenon well. They don't really measure trust. First, because what people say and what people do could be very different, right? For example, if you ask people today in the United States, do they trust the FDA marking on a, on a survey, you'll have 40 or 50% saying you know, that they trust the FDA. But the other 50%, they still take their FDA-approved medication twice a day. So what people say and what people do is, is not the same. Which one is trust? Is it what they say or is it what they do? On top of that, you have to add the fact that trust is and mistrust have this kind of contagious quality to them. So when people tell you that they don't trust vaccine, you could say it's not really that they don't trust vaccine, they don't trust pharma pharmaceutical. Their object of mistrust may be slightly to the side. Trust is contagious um, and mistrust is contagious as well. So often what you get when people answer surveys about trust is you get political signaling. What uh, people do and what people say is not the same. So for all these reasons, it's not good just to use surveys to understand trust. When we think about trust, we always have to pay attention to the fact that people have linguistically available to them and they use it all the time. A distinction between what they would consider blind faith and responsible trust. Nobody wants to be thinking about themselves that they're acting from blind faith. Everybody wants to think that there are good reasons for their trust, even if they cannot always articulate those reasons. I'll give an example that is more about this topic. The Somali community in Minneapolis, the United States, have had high levels of autism, and as a result of that, mistrust of vaccines, especially the MMR vaccine. And rates of vaccination went down, and you had cases of measles. And then, because you had a measles outbreak, 
you, the Department of Health came in and talked to the Somalis. And then some people in the community said, we're never going to trust this vaccine. We're not going to give it to our children. And some decided sort of to play ball with the Department of Health. But when you look at what they do, you see the difference. They basically say, okay, we'll give it to our children, but we don't want to give it at 15 months. 15 months is the time when you're supposed to give the MMR vaccine. We'll give it after the children start to speak. And after I'm sure that the child is speaking. They're reacting to the notion that autism might be caused by MMR, but they don't know. They're uncertain. And so what would it be to trust responsibly what the authorities are telling me? And how do I show other people as well, that members of the community, that I'm being responsible? Well, I'll see, first of all, that my child is developing and that they're doing well, and then we'll give the vaccine. And if something happens, we know that it's because of the vaccine and not something else. There is no uncertainty here. I'll use an expression that sociologists use. I would say trust is not an attitude that we just express in surveys. It's a methodology of practical consciousness. It's a complicated expression. But I think we can get a sense of what it means. It's like when we go about, we're not scientists. We go about our everyday life. We're not scientists. We're not checking everything until we check each and every detail. And by the way, even scientists don't do that. But we also don't go blindly. We employ certain methods, certain methodologies to both convince ourselves and to communicate to others that we are trusting responsibly. That's a very long answer, sorry. No, it's a long but necessary answer, I think, to cover the basics and to be clear about the topic we are discussing today. And having covered what trust in science means, now can you tell us why it is important, especially yeah. when it comes to policymaking, to public buy-in, to public acceptance of the policy and the decisions that rely on regulatory science and other forms of uh, science you just talked about? Yeah. So the way the way I tend to think about it is that in functioning democracies, you have checks and balances. The judiciary, the legislature, and the executive. And those are certainly typically codified in law and the constitution. But they're also informal checks and balances. They're not informal, they're actually formal, but they don't have the same kind of constitutional powers. Regulatory science is one of those checks and balances. It creates truth with a small t right a lot of different truths they're not they're never the final truth they're never truth with a capital t but they're truth and that's a um a form of power that can contend with the power of politicians with the power of legislatures and with the power of corporations so it's a check against those forms of power and it can be harnessed therefore to contend with those other forms of power and to protect citizens. A good example is the case of the thalidomide affair back in the 1950s. You know, thalidomide was this anti-nausea medication that was given to pregnant women in Europe and beginning to do so in the United States. Turns out it causes horrific birth defects. In the United States, it was not given to women because there was one woman in the FDA, Frances Kelsey, basically looked at the research and said, I'm not convinced. 
they'll fudge the numbers, they haven't done enough research, there's not enough evidence, and she stopped it, for which she ultimately got a medal from President Kennedy. The corporations want it done, politicians who are connected to corporations say, why wouldn't you market it? The American Medical Association said to members, yes, distribute it. Regulatory science is one of those forms of checks and balances that protect citizens. Now, it doesn't have constitutionally mandated power in the way that executives, judicial, legislative branches do. It is very much reliant on trust. If people don't trust regulatory science, if they don't trust the scientists and the agencies, it doesn't have much power if they don't get the credence that the public lends them. Without trust, they cannot fulfill this role. Well, it's interesting what you're saying. I was reading a study by Sciences Po in France, and it was quoting interesting numbers. It wasn't using your terms of regulatory science, but it was saying that 82% of French people in 2022 trust science, which is a high number on the surface. But then when you dig deeper, it goes to 68% in case of scientific experts advising the government and as low as 42% in terms of government alone. So it says what you're yeah. saying. The science is yeah. not a homogeneous uh, construct. There is science and there is science. Let's break it down and discuss our trust in each and every part of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm a sociologist. I construct surveys. I know that you can get people to say yes or no, depending on how, how you formulate the, the, the question. And there is this little episode that I tell in the book that says almost everything, which is the, the story about when uh, Monsanto came to the UK and did some survey research to see whether people trust GMOs and are going to consume them. And when it formulated the question as, these are GMOs, this is what we do, people expressed reasonable levels of trust in it. Then when it says the British government recommends GMOs, levels of trust went down <laughs> significantly because people don't trust the British government, at least at that time they didn't trust the British government. Well, let's talk about the erosion that many say we are witnessing in trust and science. You have your guesses and your theories and you attribute at least in part such an erosion to what you call on one hand politicization of science and on the other hand scientization of politics. So could you tell us what these are, how that affects trust in science and whether we should be doing something about it? Yeah, okay. So once again, it's about regulatory science, it's not about science. It's very vulnerable to mistrust and not just simply because it's related to the government, but, but we can see why. First, because it involves distributive consequences. Namely, regulatory science decisions, regulations, cutoffs, acceptable levels, have winners and losers. If you say the level of pollution with uh, mercury should be this level, that means that certain manufacturers have to pay more. It also means that maybe certain people are poisoned more. There are always winners and losers to regulatory decisions. And we see that in the pandemic, obviously. If you say with a positivity rate of 0.5 or something like that, 
you have to close schools and businesses. Business owners lose, parents lose. There are always winners and losers. There are always distributive consequences. That's the first reason. That's why we use the term regulatory science. That couple of words was invented by the FDA back in 1976. And it appears in a document. And the main point is, is that they emphasize the second word, science. They say, look, we're doing regulation, but it's scientific, it's objective, it's therefore legitimate. This is what people refer to when they say scientization of politics and worry about it. They say, you know, politics should be a matter of reasoned discussion among citizens, voting, etc. It shouldn't be a technical matter, it's just a scientific matter. The reality, however, is that it's never really is just scientific and technical. Regulatory science, regulations, cutoffs, acceptable levels, always include diverse considerations apart from just the science. You also bring in legal considerations. What can I do and what can I do legally? You bring in economic considerations. What is the loss as a result? Is it, is it too much of a loss? You bring in a lot of other considerations and ultimately value choices. Whose life should be protected? How many lives should be, protect, should be protected? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole flatten the curve thing, which projects it over you know, healthcare system capacity, involves a certain set of value choices, right? I mean, at the end of the day, people die in hospitals all the time. Every day of the year, people die in, the ho in hospitals. So at what level does it mean that it's too much? At and who? You know, and what hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. In order to bring in economic considerations, legal considerations, all these other considerations, you have to make certain assumptions. And those assumptions always, by definition, create ignorance about other aspects of the phenomenon that you're not taking into account. On top of that, when it comes to the problems that regulatory science deal with, they overflow the expertise of any group of experts. So the late German sociologist Nicholas Schlumann had a sort of a very cynical saying. He says, uh, you know, what is an expert? An expert is somebody that you can ask questions that they don't know how to answer. Why? It's, it's very cynical, you know, you can laugh about it, but it's actually very real in the sense that, you know, the scientists in the laboratory, they study something very specific, and about this thing, they probably know more than anybody else in the world. But once you ask them to come out of the laboratory and play the role of an expert, give you advice, they are asked to speak about things they don't know, the specialism of any group of experts. Just take something like climate science, right? or climate change. You need climatologists, but you need physicists. You need physicists to know how to run models, but you also need other kinds of modelers and statisticians. You, know, you need somebody who understands clouds. By the way, we don't understand clouds at all. Uh, you need economists, you need engineers. You, know, you need multiple types of expertise. Often, they clash, they disagree. They say, no, this is our problem. We, you should listen to us. Another come in and say, no, no, you should listen to us. Again, we saw this in the pandemic. So that's another reason why people mistrust regulatory science. Because you always see those kind of clashes and arguments between different types of experts. I would say also cutoffs also are problematic because they lead to boomerang effects. So take the positivity rate, for example. 
you say, you know, at the positivity rate of one or two percent, something along those lines, you close schools and businesses. People hear that. They read it in the media. So here in New York City, you had a group of mothers who organized and said, let's all go test because we don't have COVID. And because we test, we're going to bring down the positivity level in our district and the schools will remain open. I mean, that's, it didn't really work, but that's just one example of this kind of boomerang effects that you get from regulatory science cutoffs. The, the final point about all of this is that the result of that, cutoffs, acceptable levels, regulations keep changing. Now, we are all aware of that now in the pandemic, right? Because it's happening very fast. Guidances about masking keeps changing, about vaccine keep changing, positivity rates levels keep changing, et cetera, et cetera. This actually is true throughout the history of regulatory science. So that's why this sanitization of politics inevitably leads to a politicization of science. Can we take a step back? So the two yeah. surveys I looked into, the one in France I mentioned, and the Gallup poll also mm-hmm. trust in science in, in the US, the results are what they are, but... Overall, they're highly susceptible to partisan lines and political affiliations. Why? That's the politicization of science, right? Namely, what are the political arguments that we have now? Are we arguing about what? We're arguing about the pandemic. That's a scientific issue. We're arguing about climate change. That's a scientific issue. We're arguing about abortion, right? It's values, etc. But there's also scientific issues involved in this. Is there a heartbeat? Is there not a heartbeat? When does it matter? You know, when is there consciousness? When do they feel pain? These are all scientific questions as well. Our politics is composed of scientific questions, which means, therefore, that when you take a particular position on a scientific question, you inevitably also take a political position. Now, we have reached also the situation where it's not simply whether you think that climate change is happening or or you don't, that is a political debate, but the very idea of whether you trust the regulatory science agencies or not is now a political litmus test. So we've already talked about COVID, but I want to go deeper into short-term and long-term effects of the COVID crisis on trust in science, specifically regulatory science. So uh, COVID brought a lot of what is happening usually in the scientific research background, unknown to many, to the forefront. And you already gave us many examples. And it's part debate. Social media only aided that, uh, obviously, and gave rise to something you and your colleagues label as uh, coronavirus influencers. Now, my question is, do you think it is a healthy trend? Do we want to encourage such investment in and debate of the public and public-driven debate on these scientific issues? Is it aiding or harming policymaking and the outcomes of those policies? And do you think this trend is uh, temporary here just for the COVID crisis or it's something that's going to stay with us? So, so I think you already got a sense for me that I will not say yes or no. I'll say both, right? Uh, so it's 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 healthy to a certain degree. So I speak in terms of checks and balances. You need a check on regulatory science. 
if people are conducting regulatory science, they often can be quite distant from the lives of ordinary people. They can often be, you know, specialists in one specific thing. They just focus on it and don't see, you know, the larger picture. They can even be tied to certain interests and that doesn't have to be corrupt. So you just need to look and see what the movements of ordinary people or lay experts, as we call them, have done over the last 40 years to realize, yes, it's, I mean, it's healthy to a large extent. So take a case, for example, let's go to Argentina. There's a group of mothers in a village on the outskirts of some city, and they gradually kind of keep hearing about families with cases of cancer, childhood cancer, cancer of adults, etc., etc. And they start to suspect that it's caused by Roundup, that it's caused by the pesticides that are used in the field. So they go to the doctors and they say, you think there's a problem? And doctors say, no, 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 there's no evidence of that. So they try, you know, further with other experts. So what do they do? They go house to house. They make a little hand-drawn map and they mark with a marker, different colors, where are the cases of cancer? Well, suspected cases of cancer. Well, where somebody died, we, we don't know why, etc. etc. And then they produce this color-coded map. And once you see it, it's very clear because there's more color next to the fields. So this is called popular epidemiology. Yeah, it's epidemiology done by ordinary people dealing with a problem that they are very close to and they are aware of and that the experts have dismissed. There's reasons why experts are dismissing it, because there was no evidence about this, because also there's you know powerful interest behind it. So they ultimately the mothers go to other doctors and biologists and lawyers, and they create this group. I use the expression that Michel Calon uses, hybrid forum. It's a hybrid forum in the sense that it's composed of both lay people and experts. The experts by themselves would never have really figured this out. The lay people by themselves will not be able to show the mechanism by which this happens. They will not be able to convince other experts. But together, they're able to do it. And they bring, you know, a lawsuit, and they reject it, and bring another lawsuit, and reject it, but ultimately they win. So it's healthy, definitely healthy to a certain degree. Well, trying to play devil's advocate. Sure. Uh, that's a straightforward sure. example in a way. But a lot of scientific methods, even the clash of experts and expertise you were talking about earlier, that's a normal process yeah. that is expected and should yeah. be there. And yeah. the change in opinion as evidence arises, that's normal. However, when the public sees that, that is perceived a sign of weakness, so to say, for lack of a better word as a sign of uh, you not knowing and not having the answers. So yeah. that's what I'm referring to. Yeah. It's not that the public shouldn't have a say and shouldn't debate these things, but to what degree and in what depth without understanding the scientific processes and methods as such. I don't really have a good answer to that, but I would say maybe the question is not simply just to what degree, like, how many? The question may be about time, namely, how long does it take or how quickly? Well, I think it matters an enormous amount. Time, I think, matters more than anything. It's like music. So 
if you hear the same, a certain sequence of sounds played over time, over a long period of time, sounds like beautiful music. The same sequence of sounds played very quickly sounds like a cacophony. Doesn't sound like music, right? And in some sense, there is a similarity here. You're right. Yes, this is how science works. You study this, you change, you, you revise. If it happens in a very short period of time, with a lot of different voices, it sounds like a cacophony. And that's what we felt in the pandemic, right? On the other hand, if it takes a longer period of time, and if our attention is focused on the deliberation that takes in order to get from one point to the other, that you see, you know, oh, this hypothesis is being brought up and it is seriously considered, you know, and it is discussed over a long period of time and there's research done, then you'll be more convinced, more trusting when you see a different result. Trust to me is very much like music. It's something that happens in time, right? So trust is a lot, is about tempo, it's about sequence, it's about all those temporal variables that are like music. You're talking about time and and all of those issues, mm-hmm. and I kept thinking about the COVID pandemic. So do you think that overall, not that we can choose how it goes, but overall COVID deteriorated trust in science by the public? Yes and no. Again, so definitely that quick changing in guidances that we got had a lasting impact. I can speak for the United States. I, I run surveys asking people, interview them, and and now you hear it from the liberal side, you hear the conservative side, people are much less trusting of the regulatory science agencies and they're asking what can be done in order to fix them so we can trust them more, which is why we're having this <laughs> meeting to some extent. But on the other hand, we got a vaccine. We got a vaccine that saved us from a terrible pandemic. And people ultimately lined up and got the first one, the second one, maybe not the third one. We could, I could talk about that a little bit. That was a huge achievement. And I think it captures the nature of this, what I call the crisis of expertise. The crisis is not a death of expertise, right? It's not disappearing, on the contrary. The crisis is a result of the fact that we are more and more and more dependent on experts and expertise. I mean, this was a moment in time, in history, when we were the most dependent on experts that we ever were. Not just the vaccine now, but also the fact that when they measured the positivity rate, our schools and shops were closed or were open. When they said, you can remove your mask, we removed our mask. We were so dependent on experts. But that dependency also leads to mistrust. But that mistrust leads to more dependency. Because this is something I learned from my students. They were talking about mistrust. They said, oh, mistrust is just you trust somebody else. And that's true. You can't go through life without trust. If you mistrust A, you're trusting B. And the people who mistrust one expert are looking for another expert so they can trust. 
And so it just increases to some extent the dependency on this or that expert. And that kind of is a, this kind of cyclical crisis. That brings us very neatly to the third and final part of this conversation. So here at UNESCO, the UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab, our main concern is connecting knowledge and social sciences to policy and action on the ground. Yeah. And our audience is indeed composed of policymakers and knowledge producers. So to wrap up, can you first give us your pointers, your recommendations, your messages to knowledge communities as to what they should be doing to boost this trust and how they should be working around the crisis in expertise, as, as you label it. So that's one hand. And on the other hand, what should the policymakers be doing on their side? Probably not that knowledgeable about this, but I would say the following. First, in terms of the research, most of the research is about mistrust. And I think that's wrong. The research should be about trust. We don't really understand it. Most of the research starts from the kind of the knee-jerk reaction that we have when we run into climate denial or anti-vaxxers or something like that. How could they believe that? You know, how is it possible? That's the wrong place to start. The right place to start is from the fact that we trust in asking, how is it that people trust science? How can they accomplish that? Because we actually can't check it. Even when you check a little bit, you just discover the American expression is, is, is um, it's turtles all the way down. Namely, you never reach firm ground. You never reach full, you know, I'm completely sure. I've checked everything. No, you're never in that situation. So how is it that nonetheless we're able to trust? You take a flight, right? You sit with a thin layer of metal between you and certain death. And you ask for peanuts. How are we able to accomplish that, right? This is, this is the real mystery here. And I don't think we're really understanding it. So, so first of all, I would say that's the, that's the knowledge gap, if you will. The knowledge gap is not that we don't know the sources of mistrust. We do know them. They're fairly obvious and actually, in some sense, very rational, too. They're not irrational. What is interesting are the irrational reasons for our trust that nonetheless allow us to live in a society. I would say another thing is the place to study it is not in surveys, is not in asking people, do you or do you not trust? Because then, as we talked before, you just get a response to the current political situation and to how people want to present themselves. The place to study it is in what Tony Giddens called the access points of expert systems, namely the doctor's office, the clinic, the vaccination site, the hotline that you have to call to talk to some experts, even the, the online gateway that where you fill in some information and then you get responses. Those access points is where trust in expert systems can be created and also where it is destroyed too. Yes, when, when, you, when, you come, when a mother comes with a child to the doctor's office, she's hesitant about vaccination. Right? She's hesitant. She heard certain things. So she asks the doctor and she says, yeah, maybe, maybe we won't give all the vaccines today. 
It really depends a lot on what the doctor does and what the office does and how the office is organized to deal with those things. If the doctor dismisses, maybe it will work. Maybe she'll accept the authority of the doctor and say, okay. But there's a good chance to step back and she says, there's something fishy here. Why doesn't he listen to me? What's going on here? So you need to look at the access points, the interactions in the access points in order to understand how trust is generated and how it is destroyed. That's for me the, you know, I'm doing some research on this. That's for me the agenda where the knowledge gaps are. Then you asked about policymakers and what can be done to, to improve trust. First of all, yes, this is one of the biggest questions that needs to be dealt with today. But I think, you know, the, the only way to do it is to approach it with humility. The old saying that almost every culture has is, this is how it goes in English, trust takes years to build, seconds to destroy, and forever to rebuild. And it's something that we all know about trust. It's not something that happens at once. You need to work at it. But it's not symmetrical. It can be destroyed like that. And in fact, the more you trust somebody, the more you'll mistrust them if something happens because it will feel like betrayal. That means that for policymakers and for, I don't really distinguish here between the people studying and the policymakers because I think they're very much connected. This is practical research. There's no shortcuts. You can't parachute into a community and expect, you know, to come up with some way in which you can measure trust or create trust and then leave. Because they are actually sitting there looking at the crowd and saying, when are they leaving? Because we know we can't trust them. They're here only because they heard about this problem of mistrusting vaccines, and they're looking for some easy solution, and they're not dealing with our, our problems. So there's no easy solutions here. There's no shortcuts. This is something that can only happen over the long haul, and only can happen as a result of genuine dialogue, being able to find actors that are in communities who are able to play the role of mediators. So, I mean, the Biden administration tried to do that in the United States with what they call the, the Trusted Messengers Program, which basically meant that you want to create trust in a community, you go to the reverend community leader or, or even to the barber shop, you know, and, and work on these people, and then they'll kind of spread the message. It's actually very well based in, in theories of communication and for, for a long, long time, that this is how it works. But what they forget here is that government contaminates. Like, if people know that you are speaking now for the government, they're going to start to discount you. So it's not an easy task to do. It requires a long haul. It's a balance that you have to strike. Well, we reached the end of this discussion. It was uh, very interesting. Thank you very much, Gil, for your time and for your expertise. Uh, we really appreciate you being here. For more to our listeners, please follow the UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab and our Policy Nerd podcast channel. I say goodbye to everyone. To all the nerds out there. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs>